Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we bring you the tips and tricks and secrets of 25 of the world's most interesting and, well, fascinating brewers. And we get those right into your head. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. On today's episode, well, it's a busy and, well, disastrous episode. (laughs) That's right, man. So we're going to go into the pub. We'll talk a little bit about the beer news. We're going to cover a couple of other things. We're going to give you some feedback. But most importantly, we've got one, I think, a really fascinating interview today uh, with Richard Smith of Florida Hops. Uh, You may have heard some stuff about hops being grown in Florida, but we actually got uh, Rich on the phone, and I talked with him, and I don't know about you, Denny, but I thought it was an interesting interview. Totally totally fascinating, man. He's got a a different take on it than uh, most other people do. Yeah, so you'll be able to find out what it takes to grow hops in Florida. And then, of course, as if though that wasn't a sketchy enough idea, it's time that we dig into your disasters. We asked you a couple of weeks ago for your brewing disasters, and boy, did you guys give us some. <laughs> really, we got a bunch of them here, and there's some, I'd say good ones, but you know, you hate to kind of call a disaster good. Well, nobody died. That's right. So I'll take it. Yep. And then, of course, we'll give you a little bit of something on the way out the door to get you started with your day. But before we get started on all of that... We have a message from the people who help make this show possible, so kick back, have a listen, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, host of HomebrewCon, aka the National Homebrewers Conference, aka the best beer event in the world. This year, HomebrewCon heads to Portland, Oregon, aka Beervana. HomebrewCon features brewing seminars, a trade show with the latest homebrew technology, and fun nighttime events that celebrate the awesome community of homebrewers. HomebrewCon is June 28th through June 30th. Visit homebrewcon.org to register. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, everybody. Before we get going, we got a few announcements to make. And first, we want to make sure that you know there's a new episode of The Brew Files out there, episode number 38. And it's all about off flavors. No, not how you get them, how you prevent them, and uh, hopefully maybe even fix them if you end up getting them. It's Drew and me chatting away for half an hour about uh, a few things. We talk about acetaldehyde, we talk about DMS, we talk about diacetyl. Uh, Anything else that we talk about in there? Well, we talk about disasters, which we're (laughs) going to get to later, too. That's right, yeah. And then, of course, you know, as... 
things are rolling up here into later into June, it's almost time. It's almost time to get your 80s on and come join us and Brewcraft USA and Culmination Brewing at Culmination Brewing Company on June 27th at 6.30 p.m. where, you know, we're going to have a lot of free and interesting beers for you to try, a lot of collaborations. You know, there's going to be a good old party and there'll be an opportunity for you to buy some raffle tickets to be able to support charity. And you're going to be able to see Denny dressed up as something and me dressed up as something, but we're not telling you what it is yet. Uh, you know what, man? I'm going to be dressed up as me. Well, you were around in the 80s, so that's good enough. <laughs> yeah, right. So come on down to Culmination Brewing, Brewcraft USA, our good sponsors and friends, and come join us for that fun time and party just to get your homebrew con off to the right start. And we also want to remind you about our affiliate sponsor, Brewswag.com. If you're looking for brew swag, uh, shirts, openers, hats, any of that kind of stuff, and when you check out a brew swag, use the code experimental and we'll get a little bit of money coming back to us to help support the podcast and keep doing what we do. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click on the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which is, well, rapidly running out of time and yes. would be. Yep. For the last six months, we have been raising money for Habitat for Humanity, a great charity. And now we need a new idea for a charity that uh, we can support along with you guys. So uh, shoot us your ideas. You can send them to podcast at experimentalbrew.com or you can call 626-765-1AL and leave us a voicemail with your ideas. And now, of course, it's time for feedback. And our very first piece of feedback actually came from uh, one of our very astute and alert listeners uh, over in Ireland uh, at Oblivious on Twitter. And our Twitter listeners let uh, Miss Susan Boyle or a winegoosechase.com know about the comments and the fact that we had featured it in the show. And it led to, I thought, was just a really nice Twitter conversation about both you know, the you know, the presentation that they did and also the beer that they did and some of the other things that we've worked on in the past. So I like it because it gave me another chance to go, hey, you know, that cold mash, hot mash thing that you guys showed was really intriguing. Yeah, man. And it's nice to know that we can provoke an international incident. Yes. An international beer incident. <laughs> That's right. I'm putting, uh, I'm putting it on my resume. <laughs> We got uh, an email from Gavin, who uh, liked our story about charitable brewing. He says, I'm a first-time listener, and I'm listening to your podcast covering charitable breweries. I thought it was worth bringing your attention to a charity called Brewgooder, which is at brewgooder.com. Uh, they produce a quality craft lager hopped with Zots and Sriracha Ace made for them for free by BrewDog in Ellen, Scotland. The company is a not-for-profit charity that donates 100% of their profits to fund clean water to be made available for the developing world, so that as you have a refreshing drink, you can help someone obtain clean water that will literally save their lives. I'm not sure how widely available they are in the States, but I'm sure they are looking to expand, particularly with BrewDog opening in Columbus, Ohio. Anyway, keep up the good work. Cheers, Gavin McPherson from Wales, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of the town. Uh, <laughs> man, I think that this is just so cool, and I have to admit that uh, I have never really been a big fan of BrewDog, felt that they were kind of gimmicky. This has totally changed my opinion of them, and I am now a BrewDog supporter. Yeah, it's always nice to see that charitable aspect. And our last piece of feedback comes from Dennis, talking about the smoke beer question that we had in the last show. And he says, hi, I have a wag, a wild something, guess, 
about smoked beer preservation. I have no data as I don't like the beer style enough to actually research it. That's <laughs> nice and honest. Thank you. And he says, there's a precedent for ash as an antimicrobial and preservative for foods. Also, anyone who uses wood fence posts knows that if the underground portions are charred, the posts last longer. Could work in beer, too. And that's Dennis with his little piece of feedback. And, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe there is a little bit of that antimicrobial uh, property going on there. Uh, I'm still banking on the idea that it's a distraction, but that's me. Yeah. Maybe an antioxidant. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's really hard to say. And uh, But, Dennis, your guess is as good as ours. So, And it has about as much research behind it. So there you go. <laughs> that's right. I think it's time to get out of here and go have a beer. Yep, I agree, man. Let's uh, head over to the pub, have a beer, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the beer life. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. for joining us we are sitting here in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town usa and we are having a couple beers uh what's yours today drew uh for me today since it's you know a nice warm day outside and the summer is almost officially here in la i'm having a palmyra pills from my good friends over at los angeles aleworks you guys might remember we had kip on one of the brew file shows a couple of weeks back and there's palmyra pills is made with thai jasmine rice and it's kind of got that nice sweet, crisp, refreshing thing going on. Perfect for when it's getting a little warm. Wow, man, that sounds great. I am uh, I'm revisiting a beer that I've uh, talked about before on the show, and it's Umbrella from Pelican Brewing over on the Oregon coast. This beer is made with 100% Australian hops called Ella, and it is a really, really nice I guess I guess you'd call it an IPA kind of thing. Uh, it's around seven percent. Has a fairly firm bitterness, but not over the top. A uh, nice light malt character, but enough that you know it's there. And the Ella hops are kind of a an interesting blend between tropical fruit and a little bit of flowery herbal thing going on there. And it's a 
another beer that's really good for hot weather. It's uh, been getting warm here lately, and uh, pick some of this up. I'm enjoying it immensely. Always nice to go and revisit some things. I'm super excited because my good friends over at Eagle Rock also just expanded their cold storage space, which means we might see a return of solidarity. Ooh. My, my favorite mild. All right, Hi. man. Yes, I've, I've heard stories of it. So if it comes back, you'll have to send me a growler. Absolutely. Cool. Send you a can or two okay. or three. Yeah, man. If it's in cans, that's even better. All right. Well, and so, hey, let's go ahead and uh, talk some beer news while we got some beers here with us. Looks like, you know, we have the American Homebrewers Association. For a couple of years, the American Homebrewers Association has been making inroads in other parts of the world, you know, kind of becoming a little bit more international. But, of course, it's always good to have local support. And while well, our neighbors to the north are good Canadian friends, they are uh, they're restarting the Canadian Homebrewers Association and includes a couple of people that you may know from the HA as well. And they've got their first board together. They've got their Facebook page. They're just about to launch their, their website. But also, very importantly, to kind of help get the association off the ground and running, they're also running a Kickstarter where they're giving out basically discounted memberships if you go and help fund the Kickstarter. So, yeah, I kind of think that's cool. Uh, more power to them. And welcome back to the fold of having your own association. Yeah, I didn't realize they'd had one before. Oh, yeah. Well, it's one of those things where, you know, things like this kind of they start up and unless they have like some real power behind them or some real force of personality behind them, they can die out very easily. Right. You know, if this isn't your primary job, I mean, think about it. If the AHA hadn't, you know, sort of glommed into the AOB as well, you know, who knows if the AHA would still be around. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. that's very true, man. Uh, yeah. It takes actual dedication to make something keep going. And sometimes <laughs> that just can't happen. Really? And I guess it's uh, time to talk about mental health in the beer industry again, huh? Yep. Well, and so you guys will remember that in the last episode, we talked about Sean Hill's little interview that he gave where you know, he objected to the fact that five minutes of it, of him talking about mental health and alcoholism and addiction and whatnot you know, became the whole thrust of the article. And there was just a, an article recently released uh, that was sort of a, a follow-up to that. This article is about a guy named Scott Sullivan from Greenbush Brewing in Michigan. Uh, he talks about uh, the mental health issue in craft beer as a cancer. And, uh, you know, that's a, an interesting and somewhat dramatic way to put it. Uh, Scott had a lot of problems, and uh, a lot of it related to the stress of running a business. And I have to say that when I hear about some of these mental health problems uh, in breweries and having run my own business for 30 years... I can see how a lot of it would come from the stress of that. On the other hand, it really doesn't help that when you run a brewery, you're drinking continuously pretty much. And uh, that really goes to exacerbate the, the issues that you might have, uh, you know, from, from the stress of your business or if you had like maybe minor mental health issues already. Yeah, but I do think it's, yeah, it, it's good to see this conversation started, yeah, you know, and starting. And I'm glad that he also kind of viewed that initial interview that kind of kicked all this off as sort of a missed opportunity. No, I agree, man. Uh, I think that uh, you know it, it definitely is something that needs to be brought to people's attention, especially with so many people getting into running their own breweries these days or wanting to run their own brewery. Uh, you have to keep in mind that. You know, beer is a fun thing, but you're running a business, and that is a lot of stress. And the fact that uh, you have the beer there can sometimes make it go from fun to kind of a, a crutch to help you get by with uh, the problems that you're having. So I think it's, it's great to build awareness of that. And after all, it's not a crutch. It's a hobby. <laughs> well, that's what <laughs> or it's something. supposed to be. 
Yep. Uh, yeah, but uh, again, it's good to have the conversation. Let's keep it going because I think it's uh, better for people to be aware. Now, on a slightly different topic of things happening in the beer industry, uh, Owens, apparently, I just read about this a week or so ago, is closing down one of their Atlanta glass plants due to a reduction in the use of uh, domestic use of glass bottles and particularly glass beer bottles. So, guess what, friends and neighbors? We just lost a bottle factory because I think everybody's buying their beer in cans now. <laughs> well, you know, and while I'm sorry for the people who are no longer employed at that factory, I think that we could both agree that uh, cans are a superior way to package beer. This is true when it's done when it's done correctly, absolutely. Uh, and of course, now there's also going to be the the looming specter of possible rises in aluminum prices, which are going to have problems. Yeah, right. That was my first thought when I saw this. It's like, oh, great. So now uh, glass isn't going to be available, which would cause a a rise in demand for aluminum cans, which would make the price go up anyway. Plus, we have all the other uh, economic stuff going on with aluminum. Yeah, so suddenly your beer packaging might become just a tad bit more expensive, people. Keep an eye out. Uh, and then I think the other one I thought was interesting was Schmaltz Brewing Company. So Schmaltz Brewing, the folks who make uh, the Hebrew lagers, they had originally started off the Coney Island uh, line as well until they sold that to Sam Adams. They uh, they were a contract brewery for ever and ever and ever, right? You know, they used excess capacity at, like, say, Sam Adams, and that's how they made their beer. And then, uh, what was it, like a year ago or two years ago, they finally opened up their own brewery. They had you know a nice brewery that they opened up in Clifton Park, uh, they're in New York, and they they were having great fun with it, but they just went and did something completely unexpected. They sold it. <laughs> I think that probably uh, sanity returned to them, and they figured, why should we have this investment hanging on us when we don't need to? Well, and so, yeah, it, it's just interesting because Jeremy Cowan, who's the founder of Schmaltz, he he basically said, here we go. He, he turned around and he gave it to, or he sold it to a uh, single-cut beersmiths that had been producing beer out of Queens and was getting way too full. They were operating at full capacity. So they went and they bought it and they're now going to operate out of there. So they have more capacity to be able to do things. And well, he's, he's moving back into uh, doing uh, contract brewing. And I think the comment that was interesting was when he was asked why he did it, he said, I like to be out there building brands. You know, so he's, he's rather, he'd rather focus on sort of the mechanics of, of doing the brand building rather than actually doing the brewing because it says brewing is not his passion. So, Hey, there you go. So five years in uh, to having their own brewery, they went and turned around and sold it to somebody else who uh, needs the capacity. Well, you know what? I I think the other thing too, to consider is that uh, with the slowdown and growth that we've seen recently, that uh, he may have just decided it was not a good time to have a capital investment hanging over him that uh, he had to pay for when uh, he could put beer out there that he could sell and do what he wanted to do by having it brewed someplace else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you think about it, yeah, it makes him suddenly far more liquid and mobile. Yeah, exactly. Well, in the beer business, being liquid is a good thing, huh? <laughs> Having lots of liquid is definitely a good thing. <laughs> All right, I think that's enough beer news. Why don't we get the heck out of here and move on to something else? Yeah, we're going to go over to the brewery, and we're going to spend a while talking about people's brewing disasters and maybe even our own. So stick around, and when we come back, it'll be a disaster. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. 
With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. in the brewery now and as if it's a giant Irwin Allen disaster beer movie we have some brewing disaster stories for you and uh, I'm going to start off with one of mine uh, I had uh, received a shipment of yeast from Y Yeast and one of the things that they put in there was good old 1338 German ale yeast uh, which isn't normally available anymore but they had just cultured some up and it turns out that that was the yeast that I used for my very first all-grain batch of alt beer, which I still have extremely fond memories of. So I thought that I would try and uh, recreate that now that I could get the yeast. So I, I brewed up a batch to the original recipe, cultured up this uh, yeast that Y yeast had given me, the German ale yeast, pitched it in there, and proceeded to lift my bucket fermenter into my chest freezer. When it slipped out of my hands and suddenly the bottom of my chest freezer had five gallons of my alt beer with my precious yeast all over it. Uh, I was upset. I tried not to be upset. I quickly unplugged the freezer, turned it up on end to try and pour the beer out, and watched all of my wonderful alt beer with that wonderful yeast go right down the drain in my garage. So... It, it was a sad, sad day, but I didn't swear. I didn't get upset. I cleaned up the freezer and got the hell out of the brewery. Well, we got some that seemed like they should have sworn a little bit later in the show. I think mine was the time I learned that guns and beer do not mix. And <laughs> Oh, boy. I'd, I'd made a cream ale, and I'd just gotten a brand new, to me, 1903 A3 Springfield, which is a bolt-action rifle used in World War II. And I was disassembling it for the first time, put the bolt down on top of the chest freezer, and I had just moved a carboy of cream ale out to, you know, get ready to rack. And I thought I'd put that bolt down so it wasn't going to roll. Turns out the bolt rolled oh. and rolled right off the edge of the, the chest freezer and right onto the shoulder oh. of the carboy, cracked it, and just gushing piles of cream ale rushing out of my carpet. I also didn't swear on that one, but that was also the incident that finally made me go buy a shop back. <laughs> I can't imagine a brewer without a shop vac. 
Uh, no, but yeah, they come in so handy. So get your shop back if you don't have one. <laughs> it might help you if you have a disaster, much like the ones that we're going to get into right now. So I, th- I think we sh- should start here with a story from uh, Jonathan Kane from British Columbia. I'm calling it a, a use your ears because uh, sometimes you have to learn. You got to actually listen to people. And uh, Jonathan wrote in and said, the story of my most disastrous brew goes back to my first all grain batch and my third batch altogether. I decided to make the bad Santa recipe from BYO magazine. I converted all the ingredients to metric as I live in Canada and my local homebrew shop uh, prefers if it's converted to metric. Instead of calculating for one ounce of black patent, I calculated for one pound oh, of black no. patent. Now, the, the shop owner advised me that I was wrong, but me being a master brewer three batches in ignored him. <laughs> When my uh, original gravity was significantly higher than expected, I couldn't figure out why, so I assume I was just as awesome at mashing and decided the best course of action was to pitch the yeast, which was very much underpitched. The final gravity ended up being approximately 1030, if I remember correctly, <laughs> and left, as you can imagine, a far from drinkable not beer. Moral of the story, listen to advice and triple catch check all calculations. And we are never as great as we like to think we are. Oh, boy. Let me tell you, that last one has been brought home too often to me. Yeah, and I don't think your original gravity was that high because of one pound of black fat. And black fat doesn't tend to add a lot in terms of sugar. But, yeah, I can't imagine one pound of black fat in anything tasting good. <laughs> Unless you like ashtrays. <laughs> Yay, burnt coffee. Starbucks. Yeah. Next story. Our next story comes from Joe Rosenblatt from Philadelphia, and we're calling it That's One Way to Chill a Beer. Joe says, I was using a recirculating pond pump hooked up to a counterflow chiller. Since it was winter and there was about a foot of snow on the ground, I was scooping up bowls of snow instead of using ice cubes from the freezer to cool the water down. I got distracted, and upon returning from the yard with a bowl of snow, I accidentally dumped the snow right into the hot word. Go! The beer still turned out great. We called it Yellow Snow IPA. <laughs> well, hopefully, doesn't Rogue make a Yellow Snow? Yeah, ho- hopefully, yeah, Rogue does make Yellow Snow, and uh, hopefully, the snow wasn't really yellow. Yeah, I was gonna say that's a perfect example of uh, sort of losing focus at the end, but I'm glad that it still turned out. <laughs> yeah, really, man. All right, and our next one comes from uh, Cody from uh, Regina, who says uh, we're calling this one "Don't Trap the Hops." This is. Uh, It was three or four years ago when I was first putting together my electric brewery. I have three 19-gallon kettles, and at the time, only had one false bottom. Me and one of my friends were doing the first brew on the system, and everything was going smoothly. That's usually when disasters start to strike. We were brewing a Rogan beer and had just started the boil. We added our 60-minute hop addition and then started to clean the mash tun so we could use the false bottom in the boil kettle, because if I put my wart chiller on the heating element, it will cause it to leak around where the element goes into the kettle. The rest of the boil was going good, but my friend noticed that it smelled like there was something burning when he came back downstairs. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not good. Yeah. You start smelling smoke. I know, man. We couldn't figure it out, so we just carried on our way and finished the boil and then chilled the beer. After we filled out the fermenters with the beer and we started to clean the kettle, that is when we re- realized what the burning smell was. Our 60-minute hop addition had gotten trapped under the false bottom when we put it into the boiling kettle, and they had cooked right onto the element. I have a foldback style element, and it was packed with burnt hops in between the foldback. It was awful to clean. I had to scrape it with a utility knife and scrub it real good to get the element clean. I fermented my beer and then went to taste it before kegging, and it tasted awful. Like what you would imagine drinking an ashtray would be like, so I dumped it. <laughs> After all of this, I decided that I needed to get another false bottom and went and ordered another, so this would never happen again. 
<laughs> yeah, and man, the second that you get any sort of scorchy flavors in your beer, it's lost. Yeah, like putting in a patent, a black patent, huh? Yeah, exactly. So, so I see, I see two lessons to learn from this story. Number one, if you smell something burning, it's burning. Right? Yeah. <laughs> go, go find it. And number two, don't cheap out on equipment. Get what you need. Ultimately, in the end, it's going to make your life a lot better. Yeah, remember, there's a reason why humanity has evolved to be very sensitive to smoke. <laughs> yeah, because it's generally not a good thing, uh, unless you're in certain states of the union. We're leaving that one where, where it lies. Where, that's right. All right, our next one comes all the way from China, from Mr. John Horn. When we're calling this a calamity grain. Well, and John wrote in to say that uh, that craft beer is coming slowly to China. And I've actually seen some articles recently uh, indicating that there's a, more of a middle class and sort of upper class type thing going towards craft beer. But uh, it's coming slowly. And he took up homebrewing while there in China to have something to drink until then. Speaking of that, not too long ago when I was in a, a homebrew shop, I met a guy who's making American style IPA in China. So, you know, it, it is happening. Anyway, what John has to say is, about three months back, my buddy Brian came over for a collaboration brew day. We'd planned out a double brew, 15 gallons of Lambic and 10 of Imperial Stout. Things started off well, and we got through a turbid mash schedule for the Lambic and had it boiling nicely before mashing in for the Stout. Due to the massive grain bill for the Stout and my limited equipment setup, I had ingeniously devised a method to squeeze out 10 gallons. Oh, man, this is where I always go wrong. <laughs> we would first mash into two electric kettles using a brew-in-a-bag setup, then louder off enough from each kettle into buckets to create enough space to top up the kettles with water, thus doing an improvised batch sparge. Excuse me, I'm, I'm starting to laugh here because you can, I mean, you can see where this is going. Once the bag was pulled, we would add the wort from the buckets back into the kettles. How do you spell hot side oxidation? And we'd be off to the races. The Lambic was scheduled to boil for a couple hours, and in order to free up my electric kettles, I had it on my gas range. The stovetops we use here really kick out the heat as they're commonly used for cooking with the wok. The first of the disasters struck when a sound like a gunshot rung out in the kitchen. Brian and I stood there dumbstruck until we realized that the glass top of the stove had shattered. The reason was obvious. The two massive kettles had reflected so much heat that the glass couldn't take it and effectively blew up. Yeah, and by the way, this happens with a lot of these newfangled glass tops, so be very yeah, careful. Yeah, that's right, that's right. After busting out the vacuum, we had no choice but to simply continue the boil on the stove and move on with sparging the stout. The second disaster struck. My ingenious plan to top up with cold water required us to stir constantly to avoid scorching the bags on the bottom of the kettle. I had previously had success with doing this, but only to bump up a mash a degree or two. The time came to pull the bags, and they came out with ease, <laughs> too easily in fact, as both bags had holes burned in them and the smell of simmering nylon pervaded the air. I have to admit, I did this once at a uh, Big Brew Day demonstration. We tasted the wort, and after declaring that there were no significant off flavors, we didn't cover uh, burning nylon in our off-flavor show. No, I guess that'll have to be for part 37. That's right. 
We proceeded to tie the holes in the bags and use them to pour and filter the grain from the word. Hot side oxidation again? At this point, the kitchen was a mess of shattered glass, spilled wort, burned bags, and bits of grain flung around and starting to boil. My electrical breaker box located in the kitchen started on fire. Oh, my. We eventually got that rewired and proceeded to give the stout a several-hour boil in order to hit our gravity. By the end of the day, I had invested about 15 hours into these brews. My wife was gracious enough to help me mop up the kitchen at 10 p.m. Good on yep, her. My wife, would have, my, my wife would have killed me. Yeah, your wife would have moved out, man. Uh, <laughs> the stout, called Calamity Grain, ended up coming out great, by the way, and is currently on tap at my house, soon to be bottled and enjoyed for years to come. It weighs in at a whopping 14% ABV. The Lambic was split into three fermenters and left outside overnight, and then sealed and left to do its thing in my cellar. Two of the Lambics got cultures from some famous breweries, that was Brian's deal, and one was left to go all natural. All in all, this ended up being a very successful but exceedingly hectic brew day. You know, John, I, I hate to laugh at you, but man, what a story. Yeah, and, and I'm just going to say that very successful by certain measures of successful. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. Uh uh, that that is one of the the better brewing disaster stories I've heard. Yeah, I think somewhere around the time of the breaker catching on fire, yeah. I would have decided that the universe was trying to send me a message and just sat down <laughs> really, and cried. Man. The final straw. So, all right. all right. Next next story comes from uh, Frank Osborne from Columbia, South Carolina, and I'm calling this one uh, "Keep Your Spigots Ship Shape." Hey guys, I've got a disaster that I'm sure others have experienced. I'm a ship engineer on a tanker in the Gulf of Mexico. I don't think most people have experienced that. <laughs> and I work three weeks on, three weeks off. This works out great for brewing as I can brew a batch right before I leave for work and come back to a fully fermented beer. One time I made a batch. Everything went well. I put the wort into the fermenter and pitched the yeast. Then two days later, I left for sea. I came back three weeks later and found a completely empty fermenter. I was like, WTF? I know I had a Hefeweizen fermenting in here when I left. The plastic spigot had a huge crack on it and it emptied the fermenter all over the ground. It must have all evaporated because the only evidence I had a full fermenter was stickiness around it. Needless to say, I make sure to check my spigots now and to not over-tighten them. I also replace them once a year as well. Oh. Yep. Man. Don't do that. I have never been a fan of spigots on fermenters for uh, several reasons, contamination, stuff like that. And now I see that I have another reason. Yeah, well, and also always remember anything that you're ever tightening, if it's plastic, particularly if it's going to be, you know, tightened down hard, it's bound to crack at some point. So don't do that. <laughs> That's right. The next uh, story comes from Christopher Bigger, and we're calling this one, Small Batch Doesn't Mean Easy. I wanted to share my first experience with small batch brewing. I was doing five-gallon brew-in-a-bag batches before, but wanted to brew more often and experiment. I bought some one-gallon fermenters, but that was it for new equipment. Uh-oh. I planned on using my 10-gallon brew kettle, and little did I know how bad an idea that was going to be. The first problem was the mash. With such a small volume of water in that large kettle, it was too spread out and couldn't maintain its temperature for more than five minutes. I wasn't prepared for that, so while trying to maintain 150 degrees, I'd walk away for a few minutes and come back to 140. Goose it and manage to overshoot to 158. In hindsight, it makes sense. Then came the boil. 
I couldn't get a vigorous boil, no matter how high I cranked my burner. Just kind of a sad fart of a boil. I don't have a good explanation for that, but I came to my own conclusion that all the heat was traveling up the sides of the mostly empty steel kettle and escaping there. The sides were screaming hot, so in hindsight it makes sense. Huh. Lastly, chilling the wort. My immersion chiller doesn't actually reach the bottom of my kettle, so after my boil there was maybe two inches of wort, and of course the chiller didn't even reach it, so I threw it in an ice bath. Walked away and came back to find my beer sitting at 55 degrees. Less wort chills quicker. In hindsight, it makes sense. Again. Not a good brew day. May everyone listening learn from my experience if they are considering small batch. Don't assume your equipment is all compatible for smaller volumes. Take care and happy brewing. Yep, and once again, another example of where cheaping out on the equipment can come back and bite you. Yeah, I've... I've I've tried to do this before, and sadly, I, I, it doesn't quite work all the time. So, yep, appropriate-sized equipment is an appropriate thing, so make sure you do it. Our next uh, disaster comes from Takumi Sato, who says, uh, in a story that we're calling Ghoulish Stein Beer, Since you asked, I do have a story to share about a homebrew disaster that resulted in some repainting in the house. It's always good when painting gets involved. A friend hosted a Halloween party, complete with Stein Brewing. He fired up a bunch of river rocks, and I brought over a boil pot full of wort. After carefully transferring the hot rocks in and out of the pot to create a boil and adding the hops and then chilling, things went south from there in a ghoulish fashion. I went to transfer the wort into the fermenter using a funnel and screen. The screen clogged and another friend reached his hand into the trapped pool of wort. He removed the screen and we filled the fermenter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fast forward a few days and fermentation has taken off almost violently. Arm hair will do that. I even had a, the carboy in a cooler of water to try and control the temperature, lived in Florida at the time, to no avail. Well, I was at work when my loving wife discovered that the airlock had blown off. With good intentions, she put the airlock back onto the carboy before she left for her job. And for good measure, she pressed the stopper down really good so that it wouldn't fall out again. The pressure built up so much that the airlock must have literally flown off the carboy. Luckily, it didn't shatter. I can only imagine the geyser of beer that erupted, but could only surmise based on the damage. I came home to discover beer all over the wall, the ceiling, and the carpet. It was also a stout or porter, because of course it always is, <laughs> nice and dark with great staining potential. I got a carpet cleaner and managed to get most of the beer out without leaving stains. The wall was a little easier to wipe clean, but the framed art was damaged as the beer got around the glass and onto the mat. But there was no easy solution to cleaning the popcorn ceiling, short of scraping off all the popcorn. I ended up having to repaint that part of the ceiling directly under the blast zone. The beer clearly had an infection as the fermentation never ceased or slowed down all the way until I dumped it. The foam kept pouring out. I don't know for certain, but sanitation issues could have been from the rocks themselves. As we got into the boil, we ran out of heated rocks, so we put the used ones back into the fire, but that was not nearly hot enough time to properly reheat. My friend dipped his hand into the funnel before I could stop him, but I didn't worry in the days that followed. My wife absolved herself as only being helpful by jamming the stopper into the carboy. I'll own it as my disaster, since it was my beer, but I will say, I had accomplices. <laughs> yeah, trying to spread the blame, it appears. Hey, you know, some people, some people that works for them, but yeah, that's, a, that's pretty much a, a, a whole conglomeration of disasters, and I swear, it is always... A stout or a porter or a lot of times a <laughs> Russian imperial stout. Isn't that the truth, stout. man? Yeah. When, the, when something goes wrong and you're spraying beer all over it, it kind of seems to be a rule. It's going to be a dark one. 
Yeah, it's just like uh, every time I go to mill in at my homebrew shop, I suddenly realize I'm wearing black. <laughs> Next story. Next story comes from Jeremy Vandervet, and this one is called Stare Too Long Into the Abyss. After listening to your April Fool's Brew Day Disasters episode, I had to reflect back on my disaster and how I salvaged the day. I started brewing in 2013, and this was in 2014. On my patio, I had a pork shoulder smoking on my grill, and I was paying homage to Deschutes Brewing by trying to emulate one of my favorite stouts, the Abyss. Brew and smoke day was going great, and I wandered back inside to check on a few things, and as soon as I came back out, the barbecue was on fire and I had a boil over going on my kettle. To see more of the it never rains but it pours theory. Side note. After a long day of fats dripping into the grill, the fire on the wood chips decided to go full inferno, and at the same time, way too much extract and grains decided to go old faithful out of the kettle. I poured the beer I was drinking on the barbecue fire and turned off the burner in a moment of holy crap and was able to take care of both problems very quickly. Fortunately, my dinner and several leftover meals were saved, and the Abyss homage was absolutely wonderful after spending some time aging. Man, you, you gotta love a smooth recovery. Oh yeah, and uh, barbecue and the appropriate use of beer as a fire extinguisher. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, man. Okay, and then another story comes in from Ben Schneier, who says uh, in a story that we're calling uh, "What We Have Here Is a Failure to Clamp." Says here, oh, watch out for the kinks in the uh, in the outhose of your immersion chiller. I didn't heed this warning. I'm lucky it didn't turn out worse than it did. The weak point turned out to be the hose clamp holding the, on the garden hose to the fitting attached to my jaded hydro chiller. Luckily, I turned away quickly enough to avoid the scalding chiller water hitting my face, but my left arm wasn't so lucky. Oh. Minimum of second degree burns. As far as repeatability goes, I don't think I could or should recite the incantations I made over the brew kettle that day. The Doppelbach we made that day went on to win multiple awards, including first place at the midwinter competition held by the beer barons in Milwaukee. Yep, turns out that uh, the beer gods do demand sacrifices sometimes in order to give you good quality. I've bled for beers before, uh, and they always seem to end up turning out good, or at least I think they did. And <laughs> yeah, the second you get anywhere near hot water, double check your clamps. Yeah, right. Well, that this is a, a really good cautionary tale for everybody. Remember when you're brewing that there's a bunch of hot stuff there, and you know, as much as you're having fun, you need to be careful and maybe you need to use that as a reason to not drink until brewing's over. Our next story of a brewing disaster comes from Jason Manley and we're calling this one Murphy's Law. Jason is a recent convert to the podcast, but a longtime reader of our books. His favorite recipe from the book is Drew's Curried Oat Mild. He keeps that one in rotation pretty consistently. And here's Jason's story. He's got good taste. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll just say that. On to my disaster, Murphy's Law. My first all-grain batch was a disaster in itself, though somehow I'm still doing it five years later. I had just purchased a do-it-yourself all-grain kit from a member of our local homebrew club. The Mash Louder Ton is an igloo cooler, which had a homemade plastic false bottom. For both the hot liquor tank and the brew kettle, I have kegs converted into brew kettles with stainless bazooka screens. I chilled down with a homemade immersion chiller that I made out of a freezer ice maker kit. For my first brew, I wanted to go big, as in big mistake, with an arrogant bastard clone recipe I found on homebrew forum. 
I remember it had something like 18 pounds of grain, two of which were specialty grains. Too much, another big mistake. Disaster first struck when I began to sparge the mash, only to find that the mash tun had completely clogged as the plastic false bottom floated up and let the entire grain bed apparently flow into the valve. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. Nothing could unclog it, so I had to completely pour the mash into the hot liquor tank, clean everything, pour the mash back into the cooler, and sparge again. Let's not forget that 18 pounds of grain, lots of water, and the keg kettles are extremely heavy. I think it was one of those mom lifts car to rescue child trapped underneath situations. Once I sparged, the boil went according to plan. That is until 10 minutes before flame out when a Tennessee thunderstorm popped out of nowhere. We Murfreesboro residents know something about summer storms, but I never saw it coming. I managed to get the kettle covered until it passed, then proceeded to chill the brew. Wrong. Tennessee groundwater is around 80 degrees in the summer, so that took forever. When all was said and done, I pitched the yeast, definitely at too warm a temperature, and placed the fermentation bucket into my mini-fridge temp-controlled fermentation chamber. Twelve hours later, the compressor was dead, and I found that the beer had been fermenting in the 80s. Pure headache juice at the end. I bottled it and drank as many as I could to remind myself what not to do before dumping my fusel-filled brew. Needless to say, I learned a lot about what not to do, learned my system, and have been producing high-quality brews for the last few years. My most recent was your Transformed Ale, which I brewed with Equinox and Experimental Grapefruit Hops instead of the classic sea hops. It's a resin and citrus explosion. I love that recipe. (laughs) Well, glad glad to hear that things are going better now, Jason. And uh, if it makes you feel any better, I had a similar mash tun situation once when uh, I was making my old stoner barley wine. Uh, We were making 15 gallons of it and had uh, 75 pounds of grain in the mash tun when we realized that the screen attached to the uh, outlet on the mash tun had come off. Uh, we started draining anyway, and after about half an hour of recirculation, the grain bed set up and started filtering itself, and the brew turned out great. So, you know, good luck on you next time, man. Yeah, this is the reason why I don't like those plastic uh, plastic uh, mash false bottoms. Oh, They're, yeah. They, they always just seem to cause trouble. Yep. So, yeah, but uh, once again, uh, when troubles come, they come not single spies, but as battalions. <laughs> And you get the last one here, man. I do. So the last one comes from a friend of mine, Tom Fontes, uh, from Long Beach, uh, calling this one, When in Doubt, Rebrew. says, until now, I had only shared this horrible event with my buddy Val from my homebrew club, the Long Beach Homebrewers, and then briefly afterward at a meeting. Just thinking about this day makes me feel empty inside. However, it's a little story of determination, read stubbornness, nah, would never say that, to make things right. Anyway, here it goes. It was last September 10th, 2017. I didn't realize we'd had more than one in September 10th, 2017. And I had the hopes of brewing an all-grain batch with my wife. We hadn't brewed together since the very first one-gallon extract kit that she bought me that stoked my fire in the first place. My brew setup has also changed from stovetop to a pot to a full-on outside three-vessel rig with a pump, HLT cooler, mashed on all Denny, chiller and pre-chiller, etc., etc. Also, at this point, we had a one-and-a-half-year-old baby in the mix. Needless to say, that despite in-laws that were supposed to be helping watch our daughter while we brewed together, my wife wasn't in the brewing picture at all that day. Up until then, I've been pretty used to having a brewing partner around or someone hanging out and helping out with things or just checking out the process, which in turn helped me understand the process and get more comfortable with the whole process. 
This was batch eight of mine and my second all grain batch. Noticing the real trend here of how many of these are on like their first all grain batches. Fast forward through a very successful brew day that turned out to be a solo venture as my wife was being wrangled by our needy daughter. The brewing was complete. I hit my numbers with an OG of 1071 and then it came time to chill. This is where you should play the Darth Vader theme music. <laughs> when I'm brewing, and especially in the chilling process, I try to be as water-wise and water-conscious as I can possibly be. When hot water is coming out of the, my wort chiller, I direct the outflow hose into any and every empty carboy that I have that I'm not going to be fermenting in. On this day, it was three empty carboys that I would fill up one after another with water. Once my last carboy was filled with water, exiting my chiller, I started to take the hose towards the hedges that were on the opposite side of the driveway from where my brew stand was. As I was walking across the driveway, I didn't feel much of a tug behind me, and as I was reaching towards the bushes to aim the now cool water, I turned around and saw my whole brew kettle, chiller, and all get toppled upside down, followed by a cascading waterfall of sweet, sticky wort that filled up my driveway and rushed towards me like a tidal wave. Inside, I was crying. Outside, I was on the verge of tears, and angry, and super frustrated, and swearing from my perceived feeling of being alone on this brew day when I didn't necessarily want to be. I was just as defeated as anyone could be at this point. At this point, I realized I had two choices I could make. One choice was that I could tuck my tail between my legs, give up, and begin the whole cleaning process while sulking in complete failure. Or two, I realized it was still only 1.30, and my Steinfillers, my local homebrew shop, was open till 3, and I could go get the ingredients I needed to reboot the whole batch again. After a little bit of discussion with my wife and her realizing how frustrated and obsessed I had become at this point, I rushed right back to the local homebrew shop and got my ingredients to rebrew. The one person I sent pictures to of this hot mess happened to be rolling over to the homebrew shop at the same time, and he gave me a few beers of his feeling my pain. <laughs> Having secured all the ingredients that I needed to rebrew, I made it home and did the exact same brew day that I had done just hours earlier. This one, however, I remained laser-focused, knowing what had to be done, and when and how, and knowing that it was going to get done only by myself. I didn't have any expectations of anybody else, and something like that had, was never, ever going to happen to me again. The rebrew went absolutely perfectly. I hit the same exact numbers, and there was an amazing sense of accomplishment that made me feel better about the whole day and what I had to overcome. In hindsight, there are two major components of this day that actually made the whole experience a positive one. Number one would be my jaded Hydra Chiller. My whole kettle with beer and hoses turned upside down and crashed head first with my wort chiller hitting the concrete first. The jaded Hydra took the brunt of the fall and sacrificed everything. I didn't have any compromised ball valves, handles, or the integrity of my kettle at all. The only thing was the jaded Hydra was a little bent on top, and that's it. I'm still using the same one now, and it works absolutely fine. Thank you, Jaded. Yeah. And th thank you, Jaded, for being a sponsor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> se secondly, and lastly, and perhaps most important of all, by doing the same damn brew two times in a row on the same damn day within three hours of each other, it really helped me hone in my process and become comfortable with it. I know some people have the luxury of being able to brew every week or even a couple of times a week, but in my situation, I hope for at least once a month. Having the exact same brew day in one day really helped me see things a little bit more clearly, and in the long run, it was exactly what I may have needed to get where I am now. And that is where the brew day just doesn't seem like that much of a stressful day anymore. It's just taking care of the steps that you need to get done to make the end result. Thank you for reading. You can find my adventures on Instagram at Wolf Knight Butt Package or Rose Park <laughs> Brewing. And you can find me on Facebook. So uh, and he says, thank you for all that you do, Denny and Drew. I never stop being an ambassador for and spreading the word about you guys. Oh, well, thank you, Tom. Really? <laughs> well, man, you know, I got to say, I just don't think I would have the fortitude to go out and brew again the same day if something like that happened to me. 
No, I, I would probably go crack a beer and you know curse under my teeth. Yeah, me too. I mean, I would I would get back to brewing it again as soon as possible, but I just don't think I could do it again the same day, uh, especially when I'm so far from a homebrew shop to go get stuff. So that's disasters. I think that's a lot of disaster stuff. Why don't we go talk about uh, some stuff that's you know positively uplifting and growing brand new things. Yeah, let's do that. And uh, before we go on, I just want to say that I hope you all will uh, take those lessons to heart and uh, learn to be safe and learn to have the fortitude that those guys did. So when we come back, we'll be over in the lounge listening to Drew talk to Rick Smith about Florida hop growing. Please stick around. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaca is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaca is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaca you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaca wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Why Yeast goes rustic for this year's private collection spring release. Europe has long been exalted as the world's heart of brewing tradition, and it couldn't be truer today as styles like Berliner Weiss and Goza of Germany are being revived through the passion of home and professional craft brewers. Belgian styles have become the flagship beers of breweries all around the globe and continue to be the holy grail of mastery and sought-after beers. A lot of the flavor of these styles comes from the yeast and bacteria that have shaped the flavors of these regions into centuries of fine beer. Weist is proud to bring our Berliner Weisse blend, Belgian Schelde Ale, and Britannomyces Clausenii to you in this European-inspired selection. These strains are available April through July at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. We've made our way over here to the lounge, and we are kicking back and lounging and listening to Drew talking to Rick Smith about growing hops in Florida, which is something a lot of people will tell you can't be done, but not Rick, huh? No, well, not, and I'll be true. When I first started reading about the idea, you guys remember a couple of years ago, there was a story that was published about research being done at the University of Florida, and particularly at their ag station, their ag station in my hometown. And so it turns out Rick is the one who was doing the research and he has since left the university. He did a published thesis and he now runs Florida hops, which is working as sort of a consultancy group to go teach farmers in Florida about how to go make hops. And so we're going to get a new ingredient to play with new terroir to explore. And it was really great to talk to Rick. And, and of course I think he, he, one of the things he says in the interview is how surprised he was that people paid so much attention and like going, well, of course they did. It's beer. <laughs> well, I mean, he's a real hop scientist, man. That's what I really dug about him. Oh yeah. But it was great because, you know, we got a chance to really kind of dig into some of the, the strange things that you would think and mildew uh, features in the talk as oh, well. Man, I can <laughs> so 
sit back, give this a listen, and maybe use this to get some encouragement that you can grow hops just about anywhere. Well, hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is Drew. It's the lounge. I'm sitting down, and of course, you know that we like to talk about uh, strange beer ingredients, and I can't think of anything stranger than the idea of, well, southern bread hops. And so I have on the uh, the phone with me right now, uh, Richard Smith from Florida Hops. Richard, say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. All right. So, yeah, let's get this uh, let's get this out of the way. Hops and Florida, those are not a uh, pairing that I would normally think would work. It, it's atypical, I would say, in the least, you know. Um, and it's been such a challenge, you know, just to get people to mindset to change from the previous thought that we couldn't have hops in Florida. I think it's, it was almost ingrained in us to believe that hops could not be grown in Florida. Uh, so back in 2015, when I started the work, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it was published 2015, um, we were looking at just to see if we could grow the hop, grow the plant in our state. Because mm-hmm. like I said, it had been believed that we couldn't even do it here in the state. We didn't know what that meant. Uh, there was no scientific data that showed that, you know, the impact of yield or growth or anything on hops in Florida. So we gave it a go. We had four varieties in an open-sided rainout shelter. Uh, that way we were able to control how much water the plant is receiving. Um, we also had some little bit of manipulation on the environment that we had, but we didn't apply that till later. Uh, so we have four varieties, Columbus Chinook and um, uh, two non-traditional, the Neo one and the Amelia varieties from New Mexico, New Mexicanus varieties mm-hmm. that, that had just came out from uh, uh, Todd Bates. And we used those varieties because they were most southern found hops and, you know, maybe they would have some impact, uh, some beneficial uh, traits that we could, you know, take part, take use of. Um, we found that Columbus traditional hop was uh, doing the best for our environment. That work got a lot of attention. We had people from all over the world really uh, coming to see this, you know, what we were doing in Florida. Uh, and at the time, I'm, I honestly had no idea that it had that much appeal outside of our state. And so uh, we had folks from Canada, folks from Brazil, you know, just coming to see what we were doing. Um, frequently we had, you know, a lot of news, pe- newspapers, uh, uh, media coming out to, to check out the work. And there was just a lot of, uh, of traffic behind what we're doing. And, you know, and I was very appreciative of, you know, of that because it's, it's rare that you jump on a scientific project and right off the bat, you kind of hit a home run. Well, and I was going to so, say the second you say, uh, beer and science, people suddenly start to pay attention. Yeah, it, right. It seems so <laughs> much awesome, more appealing. Yeah. You know? Well, now, the research that you're doing, uh, who was the research uh, through? Uh, the University of Florida. Uh, okay, so um, now, would this be related to the stuff that was happening in my hometown of, of, of Apopka? Yeah, in Apopka, yeah. I, that was my work there in Apopka. I wrote the first paper on hot production there. Um, that was my research, and then it built upon that. Uh, we ended up with a, um, just a small hop yard to do some research there. So that was the first research hop yard for, uh, in Florida. Well, then um, I got yeah, I gotta say was, real quick, uh, go Gators and go Apopka yeah, Blue Darters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, you know, uh, and you know we had a it's it's just been great, especially you know providing something for Apopka because you know Apopka has that uh, um, the 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 name as the the indoor foliage capital of the world. Yes, it uh, is. A lot of those, uh, yeah, it's a lot of those, uh, you know, uh, grow operations that were there. Uh, they are producing plants for indoors, and when you know foliage plants, beautification, and then when people 
desires kind of changed and they wanted to go to more of an edible type of plant, um, a lot of those people suffered and had to close up shop. So it, it was uh, it, it was in hopes that maybe we could offer something to kind of revive uh, this area. There's still some people around, you know, that have been around through all that time, but mm-hmm. you know, we wanted to, you know, maybe add something to a popka um, that, you know, that maybe could, you know, uplift the spirits there. Well, okay, so now I got to say, so we got research going. So, and you said the Columbus was the one that did the best, right? So, well, yeah, in in the, in the rainout shelter, then we mm-hmm. moved from there and ended up in a uh, a field experiment uh, where we had uh, over twenty plus varieties in the field, mm-hmm. um, and it ranged uh, from you know uh, uh, Willamette to Nugget. You know, we just had so many different varieties out there. Tea maker. Um, and so we got to, at least I got to see, uh, the diversity of those hops under, uh, research. Um, but I kept hearing, you know, one hop that we didn't have in the field <laughs> was Cascade mm-hmm. and, you know, the, you know, the most used hop, you know, and we didn't have that in our field. I, I eventually got some plants and was able to use them in the, uh, rainout shelter, which became our, you know, kind of my playground experimental hop garden. I was able to do a lot of, uh, you know, just take a theory and, and, and implement and see what ha- would happen with the plant. And uh, Cascade seemed to be the uh, best performer. And that's kind of what I was getting from other, other farmers uh, in the state as as they were, you know, uh, trying to grow new, new crops, new plants. So Cascade right now is our best performer. But right behind it, uh, you have Comet, Zeus, Cashmere. And I think once these guys kind of get a handle on how to grow the plant in our environment, we're, you're going to see, you know, uh, those plants kind of be more the forerunners in uh, production. Well, so now I always think, again, you know, hops are kind of one of those things where they like the right amount of moisture, not too dry, not too wet, and, you know, like the right sort of temperatures, which usually means cooler. So what are the what are the challenges that growers face if they're trying to actually set up hops in a very hot muggy and very wet environment like florida right um and those those are definitely good points and that's kind of what was preventing people from even trying to trying to produce hops here in in the state um but you know i'm i'm a florida boy born and raised i was uh you know born down south in belgley very uh um you know focused area on uh you know production plant production um, so, you know, I, I felt like I kind of knew the environment a little bit. I'm not saying that, you know, I could tell, but, you know, um, I think what we were able to do was to really just look at the plant and study it in, in the conditions and learn what the plant would need to make it through. Uh, what we found out was our shorter days. Uh, so we get, I'm, we maxed out about 13 hours in day length. Mm-hmm. where the Pacific Northwest is having, you know, over 15-hour days, you know. And so that equates to almost a, a week extra of light each month. And, we, you know, it's hard to make up for that. So um, our shorter days were allowing the plant to trigger flowering much sooner. So maybe um, nine to ten weeks we're having from rhizome planting or, or, or plug planting uh, to harvest is about nine to ten weeks for us. And and that was in the spring. So luckily, we were able to avoid the the hottest part of the year, which is you know our summer. And most of the time, hot, uh, 
plant production doesn't exist in that period. So summertime is very difficult for us. You talk about temperatures, and you got to think about where hops are, you know, traditionally grown uh, in Yakima and Moxie. Um, you know, that's kind of uh, desert conditions. Mm-hmm. And so they do kind of reach high temperatures. Uh, so the plant can, can, you know, it's a tough plant, so it, it can make it through those high temperatures. Um, so we do kind of experience that here as well into the 90s. Um, but you do have above that, you kind of have some, uh, you know, um, uh, some effects on the plant doesn't grow as well above those temperatures. Uh, but you do have some response there and, and it, it seemed to seem to do well. And you talk about wet, you know, yes, we do get very wet. We have, uh, you know, just recently we it's been raining the last almost every day for the last three weeks here right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of our concerns with that is, you know, downy and powdery mildews, which we haven't seen yet. And that might be the benefit of us not having a strong production uh, re- happening right now. So uh, it, those are the conditions for downy and, you know, powdery mildew. But luckily, you know, since our production here in the state isn't as big as what you would see elsewhere, uh, we've been lucky enough not to have issues with, with that. So uh, the m- main issues with hot production here is, is our lighting period. Mm-hmm. We don't get enough light, mm-hmm. uh, but the benefit of that is that we're able to get two cycles, two harvests per year. Mm-hmm. Um, our first harvest is spring to summer and then early fall to winter, like in December. Uh, we can produce a harvest at that time. Um, with further manipulation, we may be able to even pull a third harvest and have hops in the spring. Um, I was able to do that at the university when I was there, and uh, freshly harvested hops in spring is, you know, rather unheard of mm-hmm. um, anywhere else. And you know, there's potential. I mean, as long as you're thinking differently and, and trying to, you know, trying to do some different things, there's potential to, um, you know, provide a new a platform, new idea for uh, use of the plant. Uh, so we've been we've been lucky lucky uh, in that that we've been um, you know able to try new stuff. Well, and then now, yeah, I mean, like right now, Sierra Nevada, for instance, I mean, they have those two wet hop beers they do every year, right? Where they they have right. the traditional one, and then they have the one where they get the hops from the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, who knows? Now maybe you can make them have to do a third, right? You <laughs> know, and that's what we've been hoping. Uh, and and that's honestly that's what I've been pushing. Um, I'm no longer at the university. I uh, own and operate Florida Hops LLC, and uh, that's what I've been pushing with the brewers. Is here. This is your kind of your first time able to use freshly harvested hops, um, and and that seems to be another thing that we have to get over is that you know not a lot of brewers, especially in Florida, it's not their fault. Uh, it's just that they haven't been exposed to uh, freshly. Uh, fresh cones or, or wet hops. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's a learning curve in that. and I, But we can all benefit from, you know, helping each other out. They help us grow. We help them produce the high-quality beer that their consumers more than likely have not ever had before. Um, so, you know, you talk about a wet hop beer in Florida, um, people are just like, a what? <laughs> you know? Um, you know, it's like one of the best beers you can have, you know, and they, they, uh, you know until they, you know, able to taste it then, you know, they're not able to realize, like, this is this is something special. Even in a fresh hop beer, you know, we're pro- providing new flavors and aromas that aren't typically, you know, available in the market through traditional hops. Um, and that's something I think is, uh, you know, ex- exciting, you know, and providing something that you haven't had before in your beer. Uh, and, and that is something that, uh, you know, th- people seem to be drawn to. 
and we've we're getting a lot of support from folks in that manner. Well, and I was going to ask, so, you know, one of the things that we often talk about with hops is sort of that that notion of terroir. You know, the the effect that where they're being grown can have on them. Like the classic example was back when everybody had the hop panic uh, about a decade ago, and people were buying Argentinian Cascades that didn't smell or taste anything like Cascades. Right? Is there is there a terroir impact from the differences in the growing season and the and just the soil and and the conditions in Florida? Absolutely, um, but unfortunately, it's only been one study on the terroir impact. There's only one study, and I was on that study. Uh, it was written after uh, my thesis, um, and we showed that we were able to have some of our oils, uh, essential oils, were double what traditional uh, production was. So the, the hops had a, a a different, totally different smell. Like one of the hops that we grew in the field was Sriracha Ace. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not you know, really known for the, uh, what we got out of it was a mango type smell to it. It's just like, really like, wow, this is totally different. A lot of the brewers would come out and say, you know, this is totally different from what I've been used to. Yeah. Well, I was and just, that's what we're finding. I was, uh-huh. I was, yeah. I mean, to me, I think if I think Sriracha Ace, I think Lemon Pledge. Yeah. That yeah, very strong exactly. lemon character. <laughs> <laughs> but exactly. you're getting mango. That's, uh, that's. Yeah. What, mango. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it was surprising. Uh, now, what do you think are there with that extra oil content? I mean, particularly in today's IPA-driven market, uh, there's got to be some interest from people going, "Ooh, I can get even more oil." So, right, exactly, and you know, and and that's the main thing about what we've been pushing um, as for not just for like the local flavor, local environment, but on a national scale. Uh, because we have something that's totally different, you're not going to get, you know, our cascade is going to be, this like the Argentinian, our cascade is going to be totally different from what's on the market. Our Columbus, our whatever we grow here will have characteristics that aren't available anywhere else. So, you know, I've been trying to push the brewers to think like, hey, let's make a, let's, let's have a new style, a new signature style for Florida, and we, where we use only Florida-grown hops in the beer. And, you know, it could be a Florida IPA, Florida whatever. Uh, but as long as you're using Florida Grow Hops, you have a new signature style that can't be replicated anywhere else. And that's something that would have appeal on a national, you know, maybe even a worldwide basis. Um, but not just local. Local is, you know, is the driving force for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but being able to present this product uh, to every, to share it with everybody else, I think, is, uh, is, is nothing but a big plus. Well, I think there's that we're seeing kind of those two forces in the, in the market, right? You know, there's that whole localvorism, right? You know, get, get your stuff local, you know, it's better for the environment. It's better for, you know, things and, and better for your pride, right? You know, Hey, this is my home. And, right. but at the same time with, with all the brewers out there trying to find, Hey, what's, what's something new and exciting? What's something else I can give out to the, out to the world. I mean, that seems like, yeah, you've got both of those vectors to kind of pull on there, you know, so get Florida pride going, but at the same time, get that, Hey, brewers out there in the world, do you want to try something different? Here. Yeah, I do get some uh, requests for Florida hops, um, you know, out of the state. I've had some from uh, New Mexico, Oregon, California uh, requests. Uh, but, you know, the saying goes, I got to feed my backyard first. And uh, unfortunately, you know, production is small for us. We you know, There's probably maybe, you know, about 20 acres of production. It's very small. We're just starting out. And, and again, we're still trying to get people to think to believe that, yes, you can grow hops in Florida. Um, 
so uh, that's where we are and we're moving forward uh we've gone from you know when i first did my paper we were at like a quarter pound to maybe half a pound per plant mm-hmm. even less uh but now uh just a couple of new uh techniques we're doing photo period extension is one of them um we're able to produce uh upwards two to three pounds per plant and so that made that's a very significant jump because now it makes us as comparable comparable to uh, North Carolina and Virginia, uh, our you know northern neighbors who are growing hops. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's exciting. And then we're not just doing it one time a year; we're doing it twice a year. Uh, so if you look at that, six pounds, uh, six pounds per plant, you know, four to six pounds per plant per year, that makes us you know nearly as compatible as you know Midwest production. Um, so that's that's a special thing to be in right now. And it's, I find it very exciting um, to be, you know, part of this, this growing effort and to see, you know, a lot of contributions uh, from researchers at the university, researchers at the USDA and, you know, just, you know, your home researchers, your, you know, um, what are, what do they call them? I forgot. I can't take the term, uh, but, you know, home scientists that, uh, uh, street scientists that, you know, are contributing and helping us move this, uh, whole thing forward well and our part of the whole part of our podcast is yeah what we affectionately call citizen science you know, thank get, you, you know, try, <laughs> try and get people to you know play around and and think I, I love the idea of like you know just you know being able to stand out there and kind of scratch your head and figure out okay what what else can we do for those of us who aren't uh you know people bearing degrees in agricultural sciences and whatnot when you say photo period extension somehow getting light onto the plants for a longer period of time yeah, exactly. Um, like I said, the plant uh, in northern environment gets a lot more light than we offer to the plant. Mm-hmm. Um, so the plant will have a longer growing period uh, and will flower much later. So that's why you see a plant that hits 20-something feet, um, mm-hmm. and then it starts producing sidearms, and then you get flower production, and then you're able to have, you know, four, five, six, eight pounds of harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't get that much light. So with the photo period extension, um, there's uh, one hop yard, Central Florida Hops, and I, I believe it's the only hop yard in Florida commercial production that is using uh, photo period extension. Um, there's research at the USDA. Um, they are also using a metal highlight light mm-hmm. uh, to kind of extend that photo period. And then you have uh, UF down in uh, Balm near Tampa, mm-hmm. uh, Gulf Coast Research and Education Center, and they're using LEDs. Uh, to also push the plant, you know, into uh, uh, extended photo period. So with that extended photo period, we're able to produce, like I said, you know, additional har- additional growth on the plant, sidearms, and then additional yield. And that's what we're getting the two to three pounds uh, per harvest. Uh, the benefits that, um, you know, it's still, we still, we have a little bit more control over when we get the plant to flower. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Um, and we're still working on, you know, delivering higher quality, uh, you know, oils in the plant. And that's what, you know, some of these uh, researchers are working on right now. Um, so it's exciting to see that part. Yeah, well, all I can say is putting on my uh, old Central Florida kids hat back when I remember the orange groves near my house. You know, if you could figure out a way to use all those old smudge pots everybody had for the groves. Right. <laughs> Probably still a lot of those around. <laughs> no, yeah. It's, and, you know. Yeah, and we have a lot, and that's where a lot of this interest comes from because of our struggling industry. You mm-hmm. know, um, 
Florida used to be number one in orange production. Um, just, but just because of this, uh, you know, greening, um, we've dropped down, you know, to number two and California is taking over as number one. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it, it's sad to see, I'm, you know, like you, I, it's sad to see Florida oranges kind of, you know, lose its appeal as it has been. And the farmers are struggling to deliver, uh, you know, good. I mean, they're still delivering high quality product. It's just a lot harder to do so than it was before. Yeah. And so uh, you do have the researchers kind of, you know, reaching out to these farmers and the farmers reaching out to the researchers saying, you know, what can I do with this land? I'm I'm, I'm driving down, you know, some roads in Florida and you see orange trees turned over Mm -hmm. uh, with their roots exposed, um, you know, as signs that, you know, this farmer is, uh, you know, giving up. So it's, it's sad to see that, but, you know, there is potential in, in, and there's a lot of specialty crops fighting for attention for these farmers. Um, we've got uh, one tree that produces they're going to use for oils. We, uh, we have growers that are grow- using olives, um, and and even hops is still in there, you know, in the mix. Um, but so there's a lot of these things that are in there trying to get the farmers' attention and and you know and become the new specialty crop, cash crop for Florida. I'm still waiting for the outside world to discover Zellwood sweet corn. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> That's a beautiful maze, you know. We we uh, we go out there every, every so often and uh, you know get lost in there. <laughs> oh yeah, and and the the Zellwood Corn Festival. That's right, people. Florida has a corn festival. Now shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I love to see this idea that you're pushing to try and yeah you know, help extend. Uh, you know what people can actually think about growing in Florida. Like I said, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to be able to walk. Yeah, you know, about a mile, and I'd end up in the middle of an orange grove. I think if I went from my childhood right. home now, I'd have to drive for at least an hour before I'd hit an orange grove again. Right. So yeah, it, that is good. Uh, that is good to see. Now, before we uh, take our leave, you think there's a uh, anything else that you want people to know about? You know, you know, just Florida hops, your efforts. Like how many how many farms are you working with right now? I work uh, with several farms right now. Uh, Riverbed Hops in Gainesville. Mm-hmm. Um, there's and. These are the larger ones, but there are a couple of smaller ones, uh, you know, like you know, under a quarter acre mm-hmm. that that I'm helping them test out stuff with. But Riverman Hops is one of the largest ones. There's an acre. They're doing all cascades, and they're also will eventually start doing uh, photo period manipulation um, to produce those higher yields. Um, and then also Central Florida Hops. Um, that is uh, one of the first ones I started working with, and and. Those guys, they're having a field day uh, June 24th, and and they're pretty excited about that because now we're producing, you know, harvest on these plants, which have not ever been seen in the state before, Um, you know, at least in Selwood, you know. Uh, So it's really exciting for those guys. And then also work work with uh, the USDA, uh, helping them, you know, kind of reach out to farmers and, uh, you know, deliver some educational materials to those guys. Um, uh, Bill Turacek down there at the USDA in Fort Pierce, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, kind of helped me out with the photo period manipulation and also um, growing plants above ground in fabric bags. So was, that's something else we've been looking at. Um, he's also worked on uh, the dormancy issue that we have. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, not only do we have a reduced photo period, we also have, uh, you know, a slightly warmer days than uh, you know the rest of the country, so uh, that's been a challenge for us. But so far, the plants are, you know, seem to be. Um, I had plants at the university when I was there in Apopka, uh about four years old, and I only let them go into dormancy once. 
um, I was able to keep the environment, you know, you know, warm and lights going uh, to to mock a, a longer uh, growth period. So, um, what I would like for people to know is that uh, we're growing, and you know, and I always tell people we grow from the ground up, and that's what we're doing. Um, we have a very strong support from people all over the state: Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville, Miami. And people are really uh, excited about what we're doing. We're developing a following, and these people are supporting, you know, the work that we're doing. Uh, I'm I'm very appreciative of that uh, because, you know, it's not every day, like I said, that you fall upon something that, you know, was kind of going against the grain, and you realize, like, you know, this can actually work. Uh, so I, I'm excited for all of that. Uh, you know, I also would like for people to know that they can reach us at uh, Florida Hop X dot com. Uh, if you want to talk to me directly, it's rich at floridahopx.com. You can find us on Facebook, Florida Hops, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, so we're, we're very active on social media. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a, a great benefit for us to be able to reach out to those people, brewers who support us uh, through that social media um, usage. Uh, and w- one last thing. One of the beers that uh, we've made when I was at the university with hops that I grew um, was able to get a Fresh from Florida label. Now, a Fresh from Florida label is, you know, is very peculiar. Uh, it only is put on products that are uh, grown in the state. Uh, so in beer production in Florida, very few of the products for beer, unless you're doing, you know, specialty adjuncts or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, are grown in the state. Um, you know, by using, getting that label on the, on the beer, uh, it was the first beer with, uh, uh, the freshman Florida hops label. So we were glad to have that happen. And, you know, it's a great contribution, um, and significant, you know, in my opinion, uh, to what we can accomplish. Absolutely. Well, Hey, Rich, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I, I love the fact that you are, that you're out there, you're trying new techniques and you're proving people wrong and, and you know, bringing a little bit of a extra agricultural glory back to back to our home. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I just want to thank you, man, for uh, you know helping me spread the word about what we're doing because uh, it's people like you that get this out. Um, you know that that makes our cause worthwhile. You know, so so thank you. Well, thank you, and yeah, guys, don't forget we'll include links to all the social media, the contact information, everything else, and keep an eye out for you know f- some hops coming out of the out of the state of Florida. You just might be surprised at their qualities. Well, thank you, Rich. You know, he's the kind of guy that people would refer to as visionary, isn't he? Yeah, and only because it works. If it doesn't work, they'd probably call him a loon. <laughs> then you're a toad. Yeah. But no, I thought this was a great, and I learned some other things. I mean, of course, you know, being a Florida kid, I knew about long, hot, sticky summers, but I never knew that we actually had, you know, short growing days. And so that was interesting to learn about doing, you know, artificial light uh, synthesis in order to actually keep that going. And also learn that, you know, he thinks they can actually get three hop harvests per year. Wow. Yeah, I know. Oh, it, nifty. It, it is amazing, man. And I thought that the whole thing about the artificial lights was truly fascinating. Yeah. So it, by all means, I'm really looking forward to seeing what uh, Rick and Florida hops will come up with. And yes, if I can get my hands on some of these hops, yeah, no damn well I'm going to be telling you all about it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the, the Florida Saison, right? Why not? There's already a Florida vice. Now we just need a Florida Saison. <laughs> really? 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up with a quick tip and something other, and then we'll all get on with our day. So please stick around. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Thanks for sticking around here. Our quick tip this week comes from a listener, Frank Osborne, and he's got a tip for a quick gin IPA. Frank says, now for a helpful hint, a little while ago, one of your guests recommended adding gin to an IPA for a great beer cocktail. That would be Van Havig of uh, Gigantic a couple episodes back or got a lot of episodes back now. <laughs> yeah, a couple years back. But yeah, and I have to admit, I've done it. I love it. So, uh, Frank continues, as I love gin, I rushed to try that as soon as possible. I thought it was pretty good, but for some time, the bitterness didn't play well with the gin for me. Recently, I found out Sierra Nevada makes a New England IPA. I tried it, something clicked, and I put a shot of St. George's gin in it, and it was amazing. So, there you go. Play around with making your own uh, gin IPA. Uh Try different IPAs. Try different gins. I like it. You might, too. Yeah, and I like the idea of doing a New England IPA. It gives a little bit uh, more of a chance for the botanicals to play out. Yeah, right, so, right. And now on to something other, because, you know, it's not just all about beer. That's right. Know, it's largely about beer. And this last week, uh, Briefcases, a collection of short stories by famous author Jim Butcher in the Dresden File universe, was released. Now, I'm a big Dresden guy. I've been reading the series for uh, since, like, I think book five. He's now on book 18. And, you know, I'm always really, really excited. He used to be regular as clockwork, like one per year. And recently, because of situations, it's been like three years since the last novel got released. So got this uh, got this book on Friday. I finished it on Friday. And, and boy, do I want more of it. But the, just to give you an idea, like, all of the stories in there are from different characters' points of view, different times in the, in the, the whole series. And it closes off with one brand new story that's never been published before called Zoo Day, which features sort of a Rashomani-type uh, setup about a visit to a zoo. And includes three different points of view, including one of my favorite, which is Mouse, the temple guardian dog. You know, <laughs> kind of nice to get a dog's point of view in a story. I love it. I love it. So, hey, I think that was a lot of stuff to give you guys. We hope that your ears are okay. It was a disastrous <laughs> show. Yes, but for disasters, it was a lot of fun. That's so right. So, why don't we get out here and end this disaster right now? Okay. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. 
You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're a bunch of different places. Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different brewing forums. Uh, the AHA Discussion Forum. I hang out on Beerborg, uh, Northern Brewer, Homebrew Talk, Brews Brothers. I don't know. I'm around. Come and find me. Drew hangs on the homebrewing subreddit as well as the Slack homebrew channel. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics or recipes or experiments or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to email each one of us separately, you can reach me at denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's drew at experimentalbrew.com. And of course, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.